One of the first things we alcoholics are told when our decision is made to stop drinking is that if we are going to maintain sobriety, we have to work at it. Sobriety can be forever, and it has been for many. We learn early, though, that it can and does have its rough spots. It is not always an easy path to follow. What follows is directed to alcoholics who are sober, but who are suffering time to time from a consuming discomfort known as dry drunk. The dry drunk syndrome manifests itself in attitudes and behavior not unlike what was exhibited during the active drinking periods. Many, including the alcoholic, believe that when drinking stopped, a state of normalcy would return. They thought that the difficult and troubled times that plagued them while drinking would disappear. But being sober, important as it is, does not ensure a life free of turmoil. There are times when the sober alcoholic's approaches to life are the same as when drinking. As alcoholism as an illness consumes the sufferer mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, so does the dry drunk. It contaminates the mind and emotions, and it affects body and spirit. It prevents one from experiencing the freedom that we sought when the decision was made to stop drinking. Living becomes constrained, and the good things hoped for in sobriety begin to recede into the background. Dry drunk is an important term to the alcoholic because at some point in recovery, a dry drunk may be experienced. For many, it will happen again and again, but for all, there is hope. The rough spots can be made smooth. The dry drunk is cunning. No one is immune. Length of sobriety, successful employment, or number of friends are not certain insulation against this dimension of the disease. Nor does being a therapist in a treatment center, referral center, or other agency that delivers service in the treatment of alcoholism necessarily protect you, and protection is needed. The dry drunk can become a relapse. I know it. It did for me. Staying sober is the work of a lifetime. You must learn a new way of handling life's problems, more particularly your feeling about those problems. This is a hard assignment impossible for some, but is the only protection against the dry drunk. It is important to remember that you relied for years on a friend to ease the pain of living. Again and again, that friend obliterated or gave respite from the burdensome problems of life. The relief, no matter how inappropriate or immature, was there. Creating new patterns for living takes patience. However, it can be done. You must be willing to go to any lengths to find and keep sobriety. The old cliché, this too will pass, must be remembered if you are to learn to cope effectively with discomfort. You can survive.
and you will be strengthened for the next difficult period. It is difficult to describe a dry drunk and its repercussions in the exact order of the events. Nevertheless, I will attempt to do so. I will tell you my story in the hope that it will help you on the path to recovery. I drank again after almost 20 years of sobriety. It shocked some. It angered others. Still others felt disbelief. People asked, After 20 years, how can it happen? What follows may answer that question. It must never be forgotten that alcoholism is real. It does not go away regardless of the lengths of sobriety. And a dry drunk, experienced after a period of sobriety, always precedes the return to drinking. Initially, I acquired my sobriety by involving myself with AA. I attended my meetings religiously and discovered to my surprise that sobriety was something I wanted, and AA gave it to me in full measure. It was Truly a rebirth for me and all the significant people in my life. For the next ten years, nothing was more important than the ongoing involvement I had with AA and its people. I found fellowship and friendship such as I had never experienced before, and my whole life was filled with the good things one hopes for. I was finally on my way out of the depths of despair where I had been longer than I could remember. A friend gave me a copy of the popular book, 24 Hours a Day, which I read daily. When I traveled, the book went with me. I became involved with others and their attempts for a sober life. I went back to my church, and I was comfortable in the churches of others. Community affairs interested me, too. I was a truly changed person. I was pleased, and so were others. After about six months of sobriety, I was asked to lead discussions once a week for those who were newer than myself in AA. Soon individuals began picking me out to assist them in ways helpful to their sobriety. In my second or third year, I began talking to local AA groups and community gatherings anxious to know about AA and sobriety. Before long, I was traveling outside the state speaking at AA functions and banquets. I rode high on the applause, the handshakes, the slaps on the back, which tended to elevate me in my eyes and in the eyes of others. I developed a feeling of importance, but I masked it well. Others thought I was gathering humility. Through this time, I did not neglect my AA meetings. On Monday nights, that's where I was. In my tenth year of sobriety, I accepted a job to work full-time in an alcoholism treatment center. It was not an easy decision to make. For ten years, I had worked for the same employer. I was trusted with everything he owned, and in turn, I trusted him. My personal life had been enriched, and my family life was blessed with everything I had been promised in the big book. 
It seemed somewhat risky to leave a job that had been good to me and venture into a field where the possibility of failure existed. I discussed it at length with family members, my employer, and many of my AA friends. Almost to a person they felt I should accept. They believed the challenge would be good and that I would find success. There were no training programs then. To learn, you read whatever had been written about alcoholism, which wasn't much. But I felt if I was going to learn anything at all, it would come from the books that were available and whatever I could pick up from the handful of staff people who were there when I came. After a few months, I was asked to fill in for a counselor, one of two on the staff. It has been said that the quickest way to learn to swim is to be thrown in the water. I managed to get through that sink-or-swim period, which included giving three lectures a day for a ten-day period. It might have been better for me if things hadn't gone as well as they did. With that experience behind me, I was given other assignments which led to greater involvement both within and outside the treatment center. It was a time for reflection on what had happened in my 13 years of sobriety. I was pleased an AA, my 24 hours a day book, church attendance, and other stakes I had driven were still very important to me. This was soon to change, however. My outside assignments increased, and I began to miss some of my AA meetings. I was gone many weekends to some distant city, so I missed church on Sunday. I convinced myself that what I was doing was for the good of the masses, so a missed AA meeting or church service could surely be overlooked and accepted by others. My personal con game had started. It was suggested by a good friend that I budget my outside time. The wise man knew very well I could not continue at the pace I was going without leaving something out somewhere along the way. How right he was. However, I was not conscious of where my pace was leading me. I was on an ego trip such as I had never been on before. And I liked what was happening. I was, to use the expression, falling uphill. Everything was coming up roses. There were minor physical problems, but I told myself, as I had told others, this too will pass, until one day I wound up in the hospital with a condition brought on by stress and fatigue. The doctor who knew me well told me as frankly as he could I had to back off or suffer the consequences. When I was released, he gave me a formula to follow if I wanted to prevent that disaster down the road. I ignored him and resumed my former schedule. My AA attendance became more and more sporadic. The 24 hours a day book had lost its importance. I read it when I had time. Things to be done at home had to be done by others. They must understand, I can't be all things to all people. It's only fair they pitch in and do their share, I thought. 
the family began to feel the pressure of my undisciplined life. And I recall it being said, one day you will fall flat on your face. What none of us realized was that much more of the same was still to come. Another challenge was offered. I was given an opportunity to open a treatment center in another city and to direct the entire operation. Mohammed had reached the mountaintop. Open house was held a few weeks after the treatment center opened. It was a Sunday in February with a wind chill temperature of 55 degrees below zero. Yet over 700 people came, and I am sure that I thought, see what I have wrought. With the new center, there were more speeches, more banquets, more interviews with newspapers, radio and television. Luncheons with various organizations and clubs were arranged to describe the treatment center. I had early morning breakfast at the athletic club and evenings were taken up with church and social groups. Within a matter of weeks, the center was full and had a waiting list. Management was pleased. Everything had gone beyond their fondest expectations. More beds indeed, double the patient population, and I raced merrily on. The world had become my oyster. AA was no longer in my schedule, and the 24 hours a day book had been put away. For the next two or three years, nothing really changed much. I had continued success at work. But AA, church, and 24-hour-a-day book remained unimportant. Then one day it happened. Sick and exhausted, I drank. It was to be just one drink, an experiment as it were. It worked. I took one and no more. Several days later, I did the same, taking again only one. It went on like this for months. Once in a great while, two drinks, but never any more. I was aware of the duplicity I was living. But what could I do? I rationalized, why not? I still did my job and much more. No one was suffering or being hurt by my drinking. And if people wanted to continue getting the mileage out of me that I had been giving them, I was entitled to a little relief along the way. A physical condition developed that made it difficult for me to speak as often as I had been. Surgery was performed. My ability to talk improved. And soon I was flitting around as before. The drink or two from time to time continued. After seven or eight months, my voice was again affected. Surgery was required a second time, but this time was different. They discovered cancer. What had I done to deserve this? Now I had a built-in excuse to stay home whenever I felt like it. Doctor's orders. And no one could question that. And two, it gave me greater license to drink. If this was a reward I was to have for all that I had done, and if God didn't care, why should I? I continued to make my appearance at work, sometimes for all day sometimes for short periods, and sometimes just to show myself and leave again. 
The drinking increased, and I began to feel like a man sitting on death row awaiting his turn in the chair. The thought of total failure and complete hopelessness began to engulf me. I experienced an aloneness that bars description. My only question was how and when would it all end? One morning, shortly after I arrived at work, I was asked to come to a discussion that was in session. The door was closed. I opened it, and there, sitting around a long table, were a doctor, a chaplain, and a good friend from another treatment center, and several members of my family. My case had been tried. The jury had reached a decision, and it was unanimous. I would be going to treatment as soon as arrangements could be made. The location had not yet been determined. Someone would pay dearly for this, I decided. The nerve coming to the place I worked and humiliating me. Today was their day, but rest assured I would have mine. I was seething inside, but my sick, mixed-up mind could not come up with anything to counter what was taking place. I went back to my office, picked up my hat and coat, and was driven home by the chaplain. Two days later, I was on a plane heading for treatment. Three times I went to treatment. Just prior to the last admission, I believed that death would be more fair than life, and had it not been for another friend, I would probably have found out. I came to in a hospital emergency room. My friend later told me I had called him in the middle of the night, begging him to come. I recall nothing prior to awakening in the emergency room. A return to treatment followed, but this time it was different. Through taping my sessions with the therapist, I was to learn how all my defects, unchecked, had led to the relapse. On a three-day weekend, I was assigned the task of listening to the six hours of tapes. I could not believe what I heard. I felt ashamed, embarrassed, beaten. This indestructible man had been brought to his knees. I knew I had finally surrendered. I had fully learned, at last, that the unchecked, dry drunk had inevitable consequences. In sharing my own story, I hope I can help you head off a similar consequence. Dry drunk symptoms have to be recognized if they are to be checked. I wasn't honest enough to recognize my own. Perhaps I can help you recognize yours. Blaming others for your own suspected shortcomings is an obvious dry drunk trait. The target is often a person close to you, a spouse, a child, a boss, a co-worker. The irony is that blaming others won't bring the desired relief from troublesome feelings. Responsible behavior, nothing less, will relieve the feelings. Another symptom is impatience. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. Feeling comfortable in the mainstream of life requires a great deal of patience, and patience will produce many dividends. But this is not an easy trait to develop. 
though it is crucial to successful recovery. The danger of impatience is that it leads to frustration, discouragement, dissatisfaction, which may result in a deep sense of insecurity. Anger may also be the response, a feeling you can ill afford for long. This destructive process must not be left unchecked. I am reminded of a friend who became furious when he arrived home one afternoon and found his two sons had failed to mow the lawn before leaving for camp earlier in the day. My friend stormed to the garage, started the mower, made a few passes at the lawn, ignored his neighbor's greeting and went striding into the house to let his wife know he had good reason to be angry. She was unaffected by his tantrum. When he finished, she calmly asked, What do you have to be grateful for? My friend said he had never before been stopped so dead in his tracks. He returned to mowing the lawn, somewhat embarrassed, but much the wiser. He literally ruined his day by his loss of control. He tried to ruin his wife's day, too. Anger doesn't help any situation. Another trait to be wary of is grandiosity, sometimes referred to as false pride. Do you think too much of yourself, or perhaps too little, but can't admit it? Do you measure up in your own eyes? If not, you had better realize your lack of self-acceptance before it leads you a step closer to relapse. Being unrealistic about your true value is a very dangerous game you may find yourself playing. Close to grandiosity and false pride is dishonesty. When you were drinking, lying was probably a way of life. You lied about how much you drank and why how much you spent and why, where you were and why. Probably in sobriety you have tried very hard to be rigorously honest, but do you, on occasion, shade the truth, particularly when it comes to risking your feelings? One lie leads easily to another. The danger is that every lie, no matter the nature, is a step further into a dry drunk. Lying when drinking only led to more drinking. Lying when sober may lead to a return to drinking. Remember the axiom, the truth will set you free. Personal freedom is what recovery is all about, and there is no freedom if dishonesty is a crutch you lean on from time to time. Along with all the characteristics already outlined, a feeling of self-importance is also an indication of a dry drunk. You will get positive attention from others, particularly family and friends, when you sober up. The attention itself is not bad, but what you do with it may hinder your sobriety. My personal story is as good an example as I can give of the pitfalls of not accepting and handling praise in a healthy way. Sobriety is our ticket to rejoin the human race. 
feeling you are above the herd or below it is the wrong admission price. Depression is another red flag of the dry drunk. You may be physically sober, but experiencing little enthusiasm for living. Withdrawal and inaction, including missing AA meetings and functions, are common symptoms. And sobriety is jeopardized. It is absolutely necessary that you do something rather than sit preoccupied with depression. Talk to your sponsor. Go to an AA meeting. Go for a walk. Bake cookies. Hit a golf or tennis ball. Call a friend who has been sober for a while. He or she can assure you that this too shall pass. Nothing is forever. The opposite of depression, euphoria, also can be a trouble sign. If you think everything is going my way, watch out. There's nothing wrong with feeling good, but euphoria is, can be dangerous. An unexpected raise in salary, a 30-foot putt, a home of your own, a shiny new car are all fine. But if you begin to think nothing will or can spoil all of this, you are headed for a crash. Euphoria is an impractical way of life, and relapses occur when it becomes sought after. You must settle gratefully for a moment or two of it from time to time. Evidence suggests more alcoholics return to drinking because things are going too well than because the struggle is too great. This is a grim warning indeed if you are riding high with your feet firmly planted in midair. Something else that contributes in great measure to the dry drunk is boredom, particularly boredom as it relates to AA and AA attendance. The familiar refrain is, I've heard it all a hundred times, or... It's just going to be another replay. It's like a broken record, so I am going to start doing a few other things. Get a little more enjoyment out of life. Many alcoholics now wish they had never made that decision. Don't be one of them. It is a sure way of starting down the road to trouble. When you con yourself into believing AA can be dispensed with, you are in trouble. There is no substitute for AA and the recovery process. This does not mean sporadic attendance, but attendance on a regular schedule. This is your prescription for recovery from your illness. I quit filling my prescription. You know the result. Don't let my story become your story. Today, life has meaning and purpose not too different from how I felt in the early years of sobriety over 25 years ago. From treatment, I went back to AA and found that nothing had changed. I was accepted as AA accepts everyone who comes. The formula that worked so effectively in my first attempt at recovery hasn't changed. It still works. The rewards of the earlier years of sobriety are just as real now as they were then. 
Once again, there is life. There are things to do. There are friends. There is AA. There is peace. My priorities are in order. The horrible nightmare is over. The reason for telling my story is to demonstrate that success in life is no protection against a dry drunk that can lead all the way to the first drink. In fact, protection against a dry drunk that may lead to a relapse is always available. Look for your trouble signs. Listen to others. The choice is yours. Assistance to members of families troubled by behaviors resulting from any phase of the dependent person's disease is readily available in most parts of the country. As I have emphasized, getting sober or straight is only the first step. A successful recovery is dependent on checking behaviors that pave the way to relapse. But family members or friends must be willing to risk whatever the repercussions in requesting help. Al-Anon and al can always provide enlightened guidance. Generally, the best first step for the concerned person is simply to discover or rediscover that others have experienced similar frustrations and that help is available. Another source of help may be the family program of a treatment center near you. Information about these programs can be obtained by calling Alcoholics Anonymous in your area. Counselors, therapists, physicians, and clergy Enlightened about alcoholism and chemical dependency can also provide valuable assistance. Employee assistance programs can be an excellent resource for both you and the person you're concerned about. Professional, confidential guidance and referral are the hallmarks of employee assistance. The main the thrust of this brief postscript is to emphasize that inaction or impulsive reaction on your part as a concerned person is just as irresponsible as the behavior you can't ignore in your spouse, relative, or friend. All persons touched by any phase of the dependency cycle have an obligation to themselves to behave responsibly. Are you prepared to do so? It is not always an easy path to travel. What follows is directed to alcoholics who are sober, but who are suffering time to time from a consuming discomfort known as dry drunk. One of the first things we alcoholics are told when our decision is made to stop drinking is that if we are going to maintain sobriety, we have to work at it. Sobriety can be forever, and it has been for many. I leave you with this important reminder. Sobriety has been forever for many. Let it be the same for you. Don't let yourself become a victim of the unchecked dry drunk.